Amen. Amen. What a great morning already. Um, we're looking forward to jumping into Romans 6, though. Uh, we're in our series here on members of one body. Uh, what does it mean to be part of a, a local church? What does a local church do? We looked at what the gospel is, because the church is built on the gospel. Uh, what the local church is, the visible gathering of those who believe the gospel. And just last week, we started looking at what a church does. And the first and most important thing a church does is study the scriptures. And today we're going to be looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, what a church does. These are the ordinances of the church, sometimes they're called. Uh, the sacraments of the church. Um, maybe we could even call them the plays of the church. The, the skits of the church. And we'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, by the way, there's only two. I know that some traditions say there are seven. Um, but in Scripture, there's only two clear ones that Jesus himself gives us to do. They're commanded by Jesus, and they both picture the gospel. They both bring us back to that central thing that the church is built on, the gospel itself. Uh, it's been said that, uh, that this is part of what makes a church a church, uh, and not just a Bible study. Uh, a Bible study can certainly study the Bible together, but what is a church? A church also does these things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's part of that, what identifies a church to be a church. Uh, both of them are meant to be done together as a church. They're not private actions of a Christian. Uh, they're meant to be done with one another as a church body. There are exceptions, of course. Those may be in prison or, or in, on the mission field, but the rule is that these are usually done with one another. And I think, friends, there is great wisdom in God, of God in giving these to us. One of them starts off the Christian life by recognizing the power of the gospel. The other is a continual expression of our union with Christ by recognizing the gospel. I was baptized when I was about uh, just turning 15, 14, 15, in the pool right behind me. We recently had a couple of baptisms, and I've been taking, of course, the Lord's Supper uh, ever since, persevering in the Christian faith. God gives us baptism and the Lord's Supper to remind the church of the gospel. Look with me at Romans 6, 1 through 7. God gives baptism in the Lord's Supper to remind the church of the gospel. This is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, probably the, the, the most controversial and most active apostle, Paul, uh, to the largest and most influential church of the first century, Rome. And here he is addressing the church in Rome. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we who would no longer be enslaved, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. God gives baptism in the Lord's Supper to remind the church. Of the gospel. There should be an outline um, in your bulletin if you want to look and see where we're going or take notes. Uh, just turn right to the middle of the bulletin. Uh, we're going to look at first verses 1 and 2 
Uh, we who believe the gospel are called to live for Jesus. We're called to live for Jesus. Paul calls the Romans to live for God, to live for Jesus and not for sin. He starts off by asking some questions, kind of rhetorical questions. He asks here, what shall we say? It's one question. And the next one is, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? He's using what is sometimes called the Socratic method. Uh, you teach by asking questions, kind of posing it to the person who's listening. You answer the question, shall we go on sinning? Uh, and the argument that he's dealing with, the false logic that he's dealing with is, you can kind of read behind the text is, uh, if I sin and God shows his grace to forgive my sin, then maybe I should sin all the more, right? So if God is glorified by showing grace and forgiveness to me, then if I sin all the more, he's even more glorified by showing even more grace. That's the argument he's arguing against, of course. And he answers his own question with the strongest negative possible. Um, it's in, if you, you know, if you knew the Greek, it would be the optative mood. It's, it's to say, let it not even come to mind. Never let that be true. Different translations say different things. Away with the notion. Uh, perish the thought. By no means, this idea that we would continue in sin, that grace would may increase, is nonsense. Never let it be true. And he explains why. Because we died to sin. Uh, that we've experienced a, a death, a spiritual death to the power and the world and the sphere, the kingdom of sin. How then can we remain in it? And just to be clear, the word for live in it is remain, to sort of stay there in sin, the Greek meno, uh, as if sin is our world still. So the question is, I mean, you might ask is, okay, practically speaking though, uh, Paul, do Christians go on sinning? I mean, it seems like we do, right? So what does he mean? How can we remain in sin? Well, yes and no. Uh, first of all, uh, no. Uh, well, let's look here. He says, well, the idea is that we were once a friend of sin. A sin was on our side. <laughs> or in one sense, we were on sin's side. It was our friend. Now it's become our enemy. Um, think of it as, as two spheres. We were in Adam, which is the world of fallenness and rebellion and treachery against God. And in that world, sin absolutely reigns supreme. Rebellion against God reigns. We've been taken out of that realm and put into a different sphere. The realm of Christ, where Christ reigns and righteousness reigns. Now, does that mean we still at times battle against sin? Of course we do. There are only two sides. Jesus made that clear. There's only two sides. There's no middle ground. <laughs> We're either on one side or the other. We're either in the sphere of Adam or the sphere of Christ. We're either under the reign of sin or the reign of God. His kingdom or the world's kingdom. It's one or the other. Just as a, a kind of a, a little bit of a side note, Bart Ehrman, he's a uh, skeptic who doesn't believe the Bible is true. Uh, he points out that in one gospel, Jesus says uh, that anyone who is not for me is against me. In another gospel, it says, anyone who is not against me is for me. And he says, look, you have a contradiction in Scripture. Both can't be true. Well, actually, he's definitely wrong. Even logically, he's wrong. If you have only two sides, if you're not against that side, you're for it. And if you are against that side, then you're for it. So you're either on one side or the other. And that's what Jesus continually says throughout his entire ministry. There are only two sides. If you're not against me, you're for me. If you're for me, you're not against me. Both are true. But yes, we battle against sin. We're not completely done with sin. 
And we'll battle with it for the rest of our lives. We, we never become perfect. We never become holy in practice in this world, on this side of heaven. I know some denominations do say that you can reach a, a, a state of perfection. Uh, John Wesley taught that. He said himself, he himself didn't reach it, but that we could reach a state of perfection. He took it because the Bible says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or to be holy. Um, but I think the idea is you, you're striving for it. You're fighting for it for your rest of your life. Never arriving there. So one sense, no, we don't continue in sin. We, we don't sin like what we once did. <laughs> We're on the opposite team now. Uh, anyone been watching the Bruins? Hopefully you've been watching the Bruins. So I'll get a little picture of a, of a hockey match. Uh, uh, what is uh, Rodney Dangerfield's thing? I went, I went to go see a fight and a hockey match broke out. Right? Yeah, so, well, fighting has been cut down a lot when it comes to, to hockey. But it's, it's one side versus the other. <laughs> you're, you're either on one team or the other. There's no in-between in this battle. That's us, friends. We were once on sin's team. In the sphere of Adam and in the sphere of sin, battling against it, but now we've been transferred out of that kingdom into another one. And we're in a fight, a battle against sin. We may lose a battle here or there, but the war will be won on our side. Those who are opposing sin on the side of Christ. Here's the point, friends, for us here. The local church is here to help. <laughs> we're here to help you in this battle against sin. How do we do that? A number of different ways. We looked at last week. We teach, correct, rebuke, and train according to the scriptures. But also, these ordinances that bring out the truth of the gospel and remind us of where we have been and where we are going. We'll look more at that in just a little bit. The fact that God gives us pastors and elders and deacons. Uh, we'll be hearing a sermon on that from, from Dave Herring. Remember you guys remember Dave in a few weeks, Lord willing. He also gives us the gift of church discipline. And you might be, if you're relative, you say, well, that doesn't sound like much of a gift, <laughs> Pastor Rick. Uh, but it actually is to be accountable, to have someone looking out for you, to confront sin, uh, to deal with sin in the church, to help bring about restoration. That's a gift as we battle against sin. And the church is called to go after the one lost sheep. If you begin to stray, I mentioned last week that a lioness hunts by looking for that one animal that has separated from the pack. Maybe it's injured, maybe it's getting a little lost, and it seeks after that one animal, right? And that's sort of what Satan does. He looks for the one Christian who is separated from the pack, is in a spiritually vulnerable situation, and goes after them. Well, we should be going after them first. That's our goal as a church, to say, to find someone who has strayed and say, come back, you're welcome back. Be strengthened by being together with God's people. And the local church helps by giving us good and godly examples. We need that. We need that, friends. We, we like to see things. Uh, just hearing the word is very powerful, but you need to see it in action. And we see older, more mature Christians who finish the race well, who die well and, and go into glory, or who are living well in this life is extremely important as we watch that. That's why we need the church. That's why turning on TBN and, or whatever it is, or turning on the radio, Christian radio, and just listening to a sermon is not, is not enough. We need a body which we're strengthening and encouraging and helping one another finish well as we battle against sin. Verses 3 to 5. Baptism, however, and the Lord's Supper, we'll throw that in, is a symbol of our union with Christ. This is where it comes in. It's a symbol of our union with Christ. 
Uh, he brings in the, the topic of baptism. Water baptism, I think, is what he has in mind here. Uh, he's not using baptism as a symbol. He's talking about actual water baptism. He's, he brings it in to defend his point about our battle against sin. So this is not really about baptism. Baptism is brought in as, a, as an illustration, uh, but because it's a perfect example of our union with Christ and our dependence upon the gospel. That we're baptized, as he says, into Christ. Death, we're buried with him, and we're raised. When you think about what exactly is baptism, what's going on in the very act of baptism, you are being buried under the water. <laughs> you're, you're demonstrating a death. In one sense, there's the first half of a baptism is a funeral. You're demonstrating that the old you is gone. The old self is dead. But then, of course, you are raised out of the water. And what happens usually in our church when somebody gets raised out of the water? Everybody cheers and claps, right? <laughs> Which is the right response because it symbolizes a resurrection from the dead. A spiritual new life in union with Christ. And similarly, we could say with the Lord's Supper, it's symbol, we symbolize the body and blood of Christ for us as we eat of it, our union with Christ. The assumption is we are already united with Christ. Already united with Christ. And we demonstrate that with baptism. We are his and his forever. Augustus Strong, I mentioned, uh, was a former pastor here. He wrote this in his systematic theology. Baptism symbolizes the previous entrance of the believer into the communion of Christ's death and resurrection. Let's look a little bit about baptism. If I could take a little bit of a rabbit trail. Um, We've done a number of baptisms here. I have a picture of one. Uh, you may recognize this guy doing the baptism. He doesn't really look like me. Uh, that's Mitch, and uh, he's baptizing Sydney. I'm not sure if Sydney's here either. Uh, but Mitch has baptized two people here, two uh, Jewish believers. Both of them were named Sydney. Do you know that? One of them was an 80-something-year-old man, and one was a teenage girl, but they both had the same name, Sydney. So Mitch, I don't know if, if, if you're still here, but if, yeah, there he is. Mitch, if the, if the third person is named Sydney, that'll be interesting as, as well. But You'll have to find a Sydney. That's right. Uh, but what is baptism? Uh, why, one of the reasons this is why we don't baptize babies. I know a lot of traditions do. Um, the assumption here is what? That somebody has come to faith themselves in Christ. That they're now united with Christ. They've died to the old self and they're risen to something new, that they have belief, they have trust, they have knowledge of who God is, and they're looking to him as Savior. By the way, this month, I don't know if, you, if the O'Donnells know this, but this is uh, the three-year anniversary of their baptism. So they were about three years ago, they were baptized right here. Uh, this is also why we don't sprinkle. So I'm just using this as a little bit of a teaching opportunity here. This is why we don't sprinkle. I know some traditions do. Uh, what does he say? We have been buried with Christ, uh, Sprinkling doesn't really bring out burial very well. Uh, that's, so that's why we don't do that. I would do a, a sprinkling if it needed in a certain situation. If somebody was in their deathbed at the hospital and they weren't able to be immersed, I would certainly be willing to do that. But that should not be the norm. We're, we're demonstrating death and burial to an old self and resurrection to something new. It's also important for me to know, baptism doesn't save you. Uh, baptism doesn't save anyone. In fact, you can point to clear examples in the Bible of people who were clearly saved and were not baptized. The thief on the cross being a primary example. He died before he had any chance to be baptized. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. 
The power of baptism is not in the act itself. There's nothing magic, nothing supernatural in the very act of baptism. It's what it symbolizes that has all the power. It puts our focus back on Christ, on his death and resurrection, which empowers us to a changed life. Now you might say, some might say, especially if you come from a more traditional background, doesn't that mean it's, it's not as powerful? Actually, symbols are extremely powerful because they point to something bigger and better. So you've heard about the whole flag burning. People burn the American flag, and for most people, that really irritates us. Why? It's just a piece of cloth with different colors on it, right? No, it's what it symbolizes. It symbolizes our, our country. It symbolizes our nation. It symbolizes our soldiers or whatever, all the background of what happens when we, somebody burns a flag. It's not about the act itself. It's about what that symbolizes, something far greater and bigger. When, we baptize, when we're baptized, it points us to what Christ has done for sinners. And friends, I would just pray and hope that many, many, many more baptisms are to come for us as a church as we celebrate not the act itself, but what it points to, God's transforming grace in the lives of sinners. How does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Very simple. First of all, if you haven't been baptized as a believer in Jesus, get baptized. It's a good thing. Uh, as I said, it doesn't save you, but it is a good thing. It's something that God commands us to do, something we should do. It's something that we celebrate together. So that's the first thing. Second thing I would say is let every baptism that we enjoy here as a church, let it symbolize this for you. Uh, let it be a reminder to you and to me that we too are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That we too, like Stephen was saying in his testimony, were far from God, broken down, in need of Christ, and God stepped in and brought us to himself. But every time we see it, every time we experience it, let it draw our hearts to worship as well, that we are with him to the very end. Friends, then enjoy this union. <laughs> enjoy this union that you and I have with Christ. When you read the Bible, read with the open eyes of a son or a daughter who's been adopted and belongs to God. When you pray, it doesn't have to be some big formal prayer. You're speaking to your heavenly Father who loves you. You're united with him forever, united with Christ forever. When you worship, it's not all about the music. It's about whether we are encountering our creator and our Father who loves us. When we share this message with others, it's not some set message we're just trying to get out there. We're talking about what has changed our lives and what we know has the power to change lives. Enjoy this union that we have with Christ. And as I said, pray that God would give us a hundred more. <laughs> pray that God would give us many more opportunities to celebrate his grace. Verses six and seven. Christ's sacrificial death for us frees us from our sin. It frees us from our sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. He reminds us not only of our union, but of Christ's sacrifice in particular. That this old self that we had is, has been crucified with him. Uh, that there was a, a body, a, a physical body, that's what he has in mind here, the body of sin, that was used in a sense as an instrument for sin. Uh, that, was a, that was the purpose of our body in, this, in the realm of Adam and, the, and under his 
reign. But that sin has been defeated and done away with. That we were once slaves to sin. Again, it was our friend. (laughs) We liked sin. We were on sin's team until God transferred us out of that world and under his kingdom, friends. We died to that old self, so we are called not to live in it any longer. And I know that I heard that when the Emancipation Proclamation came out uh, and slavery became illegal in all of the United States of America, that it took a long time to actually get to a lot of states, which meant that there were many, many slaves living free, (laughs) free by the laws of the land, but continuing to live in slavery for months and months and months after the Emancipation Proclamation. Continuing to be driven by a slave driver, uh, continuing to labor hard under the, under the hot sun in the fields, and all the time being absolutely legally free to go wherever they wanted to. Anyways, I think that's us, friends. We are set free by Christ's death, and yet sometimes we continue to live as if we are still slaves to sin. We're free in Him by the cross of Christ. We're free from its guilt and its shame. We're free from its guilt before an almighty God. And others might hold that guilt towards you, but what does Romans 8 say? Uh, that those who are in Christ, uh, who would hold anything against God's, those whom God has pardoned? If God has forgiven us, what can anyone hold against you? He's the, one, the only one that really matters. Our guilt is removed our shame, the shame we saw with Adam as he sinned and hid in the Garden of Eden and his rebellion against God is gone. More than that, we're free from its power. We're free from the power of addiction. We're free from the power of temptation. Sin is overcomable, if that's even a word. Uh, we're not trapped and in bondage to sin. We can defeat it. We can overcome it. It no longer has mastery or reign over us. And we are free from its ultimate end. This two-sphere sort of world of rebellion is only temporary. Eventually, God puts down the rebellion. And those who are still in that rebellion face an ultimate end of his wrath. And we who are in Christ are free from that wrath. Because we're no longer under sin's reign and power. Friends, you, you and I belong, as, as F.B. Meyer said, to the resurrection side of death. Live in union with the risen Redeemer. We're free in Him. Let me talk a little bit about the Lord's Supper because with the Lord's Supper we do something similar. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Again, both picture the gospel. That's why both of these two ordinances actually really matter. They both point us to what the church is really all about. What does it picture? It pictures again Christ's death. His body broken for us. His blood shed on the cross. And what do we do? We, we actually take and we eat it, which is a strange thing, right? But what did Jesus say? Whoever eats of my body, drinks of my blood, um, if whoever doesn't has, does not have eternal life, is, I think speaking symbolically of our union with him. And so when we together take communion and actually eat communion together, what are we saying? This is my Savior. This is my Lord. I re- I've received him as my Lord, and I'm united to him. When we eat something, we're in a sense united to that thing. When we together take communion, we demonstrate our union with Christ. I know, again, like baptism, but even more so, there have been different views of the Lord's Supper. Um, There's been what's called transubstantiation. It's a big, long word. Um, which means basically that the body and blood, uh, the bread and the wine actually become real flesh 
and blood. So that's one view of the church um, over its long history. And you say, well, how come it doesn't look like body and blood? Because they say, I think it was Aquinas who said, God spares us from being grossed out, basically, by making it continue to look and taste like real, like real bread and real wine, even though it actually physically is a blood and body. We don't believe that here. Okay, that's just one view that's been that's very common, uh, that's out there. Luther had a kind of a mixed view called consubstantiation. He said Jesus is somehow physically present. We just don't know how. Um, then later on in church history, you had what's called the spiritual presence. That was Calvin's view uh, that somehow that there that God is spiritually present in the loaf of bread and in the wine in a way that is different than everywhere else in the universe. Um, I don't think any of those quite get it right. I go with the simple view that it is, again, like baptism, a symbol of the gospel. And symbols are powerful because they point to something far greater. They point us to what Jesus actually did 2,000 years ago on the cross and giving his life for us. Again, like baptism, the Lord's Supper does not save us. There is no saving work in taking the bread and drinking the cup. But what it does do is gives us a powerful act of worship to remind us once again of what Christ has done for us. How do you, if that's true, then how do you take communion? And this has been a, a big debate for a lot of churches and even in our church over its history. Uh, is there a right way to do it? And here's my answer. Uh, don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> all right? I mean, first of all, take it. Take communion if you're a Christian. You're supposed to take it. It's a great reminder. Uh, take it seriously. You get that from Corinthians. Don't, don't take it lightly. Make sure you're taking it seriously. And take it with your church. It seems to be the model always in Scripture. Uh, Jesus did it with his disciples. In the New Testament, we're told again that the church does it. But beyond that, there's really no set way to do it. Um, interestingly enough, I've asked this question before, but some of you guys may, may or may not remember. Um, some churches would say you, you should take it standing up, or at least their practice is that you would take it standing up. Other churches say you would take it sitting down, um, which is our practice. Do you know which way Jesus did it with his disciples? Laying down on the floor. So he did neither one of those. So neither one of those were right. In fact, we want to be more specifically, actively biblical. We should all lay out on the floor here and take communion. But I don't think we need to do that because, as I said, it's not the point. The point is, what does it symbolize? The body and the blood of Jesus. Friends, let it be a reminder to us of Christ's death. For us at First Baptist specifically. We hold on to this message that Christ's death is enough and his resurrection enough to save sinners like us. Over our, our church history, by the way, this is ebbed and flowed. There have been times in our church history where we've, I wouldn't say we lost the gospel, but we've moved in a direction away from the centrality of this message. And there have been other times in our church history where we've been very firmly holding on to this. 254 years, friends, we want to continue to hold on to this message. We want to celebrate the work of Jesus saving lives, saving sinners, with every baptism and every Lord's Supper. And I was thinking about the the effect, the fruitfulness of this church over its 250-something year history. Uh, I would guess, of course, over, over its church history, we've had thousands of members. Maybe tens of thousands of members, I would guess. We might be in that realm um, over its long history. But then you look at its effect. How many people has, have come to faith? You think about its missionaries. We were involved in the first missionaries sent out from the United States, first Protestant missionaries, the Judsons, uh, being sent here from the United States. And now we're into maybe the, the hundreds of thousands. And if you think about it, 
of, of, of all the people who maybe came to faith, at least in some way, by people who have come through this church, gone to another church, or gone out from here, uh, the, the effect of this church may be actually in the millions. Isn't that an amazing thought? That through this church's ministry, millions perhaps have come to faith. Our friends, that's why we need the church. Uh, friends, I, w- I would just hope that we would understand that being part of a church matters. I know that our culture is changing. Uh, right now, there's, uh, so if you talk about institutional religion, um, that's a bad word, right? Churchianity, sometimes it's called. But I would just say search the scriptures instead and see what do we find here, that commitment and love to a local church body, brothers and sisters in Christ, together celebrating this message. is not only a good thing, but something that God calls us to do and is pleased with. God gives us baptism in the Lord's Supper to remind the church of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I, I love a good story. I love a good story. Um, big fan of Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and Lewis is, you know, with Aslan. Um, big fan of Lord of the Rings. Uh, new Tolkien movie coming out, although somebody sent me an article that said that the movie completely leaves out his Christian faith, which is terrible. Uh, actually, his Christian faith was a huge, huge part of his life. I love Sherlock Holmes, right? Any Sherlock Holmes fans here? Good, all right, a bunch of folks. Uh, I love uh, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky. Uh, what a great story. I mean, it's a long one, but it's a love good stories. Every baptism is a short story. That's what it is. It's a skit. It's a little mini play. And not only the testimony portion, oh, that's certainly too, but it's a reenactment. This person has been buried with Christ in death. This person has been risen with Christ to new life. Every Lord's Supper tells us a narrative, reminds us of Jesus' body broken on the cross. It reminds us of his blood which ran down red for sinners like you and me. It reminds us of our union with him. It reminds us of his love for sinners like us as he calls us to live for him. As Matthew Henry said, what can be a stronger motive against sin than the love of Christ? Shall we sin against so much goodness and such love. It reminds us of how we're saved, of why we're here, meeting together as a church, and ultimately where we're going, as we will be risen physically one day in a new spiritual body, as we will one day dine and enjoy fellowship with Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you so much for the local church, which again is a creation of yours. It wasn't something that a group of of men and women got together and decided we should just go ahead and start this institution. Uh, It's something that you yourself founded upon the message of Christ himself, upon the gospel. And Lord, all that we do, ultimately we want to point us back to your great love for us in Jesus. 
Father, we pray that we as Christians who follow you would remember that we have been transferred out of the realm and the reign and sphere of sin where rebellion reigns and that we've been put instead in the realm of Christ. We'll be put on your side, Lord, the winning side, the side of resurrection in which our Redeemer stands complete with his finished work over our lives. And looking forward to that great day, Lord, in which we will be united with you forever. Thank you, Father. Continue to bless us. We pray this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.